Hi, my name is Francis, and I'm calling from Texas. I'm just curious, how do we get the presidential candidates to pay attention and to understand the importance of your message? Hi, this is Brian calling from Chicago. Uh, my question is about the minimum wage. Hi, Nick. My name's Harden, and I'm calling from London. How is it that, as individuals, we can help change the system and make it more equitable and fair for those around us? Thanks, and once again, love you guys. All the best. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. One American capitalist take on how we got into this mess and how we can get out. So today on Pitchfork Economics, I am joined uh, by my friend, Trey Crowder, the comedian, and uh, super excited to do an Ask Me Anything episode. Trey is visiting uh, uh, from Los Angeles, where he lives after having grown up in Tennessee. Yeah. Hey, I was going to say, you can tell by my accent, I'm from Los Angeles. <laughs> exactly. It's a very strong Los Angeles accent. Mm-hmm. Yep. The south of California. <laughs> So we have been asking uh, for a long time for uh, our listeners to submit questions. We got a ton of them. We're going to get to as many as we can. Uh, And Trey and I are going to do our level best to intelligently, or at least amusingly, answer your questions. Hey there, this is Nick Hanauer. You've reached the magic voicemail box where you can leave me a question for my Ask Me Anything episode. All you have to do is state your name, where you're calling from, and your question as clearly as possible. So thanks. Greetings. I am Donnie May from Ontario, California. How do you reconcile your views as a capitalist with policies many people would call socialist? Thanks for all you do. Hope to hear from you on the radio. Bye-bye. So Donnie May from Ontario, California. It's weird because I kind of just asked you a version of that question like 10 minutes yeah. ago before we got on here. Yeah. And I mean, briefly, uh, you know, Trey and I were chit-chatting about economics and he, he wondered how we thought about socialism. And the problem is the, the definition of the word, isn't it? Yeah, socialism is a particularly in like uh, places like where I'm from, like rural America, socialism's a a dirty word, right. you know, like people, peop, no, a lot of people don't even really know exactly what it even means really, or doesn't mean everybody has their own idea of what it means. And a lot of people hate that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and here's the thing. I think a lot of people hate socialism for a very good reason, because the dictionary definition of socialism is the state ownership of the means of production. And in other words, no private enterprise or private industry, uh, and that's an economic system that has been tried right. in a bunch of places, and it has been a total catastrophe because um, d- despite the facts that our existing economic system are imperfect and screwing a lot of people over, markets work a shit ton better than— Governments? Not, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't not, say. Yeah, not markets. <laughs> and and so—but what a lot of people uh, mean when they talk about socialism today, I think— is really reforming our economic system, our capitalist system, into a system where the market works for people, right. not just for money. And that's a thing that we can very easily do uh, in many ways. That's the purpose of the Pitchfork Economics uh, 
uh, to get more money to more people. Right. right? And yeah. and that's uh, and again, there are a lot of people who would claim that socialism. I respectfully disagree. I think the the word is a very poor choice for reforming a market system into a better system. But anyway, I think that in many ways what we're talking about here is what people are thinking about when they talk think about socialism, just an economic system that benefits everybody, not the few. Right. Hi, uh, this is Mark uh, from Portland, Oregon. And here, my question is this. I think there's a strong business argument for shifting health care costs from businesses who pay, who pay for those uh, health care costs through their em employee benefits uh, and paying those benefits and shifting that cost and putting it onto the government uh, tab. It seems like it would save a lot of money uh, for business if they didn't have to pay those health care costs anymore and it would make them more competitive. Why don't I see that argument being made? Um, uh, why are businesses so interested in continuing to pay for health care costs? Thank you. Mark, I, I, it, it feels to me like a lot of the uh, opposition to, you know, the government paying for health care is because, well, that's socialism, and socialism is a dirty word to mm -hmm. these people. Like, they don't want... My taxpayer dollars shouldn't be going to pay for somebody else's, you know, scraped knee or whatever. But to me, my my number one thing with this has always been like, we're not going to allow people to literally die. And if we're not, then we're going to fix people up. Somebody's got to pay for it no matter what. So we either let people die in the street or the government can just start paying to cover them and costs will go down overall eventually anyway. But I'm mostly talking out of my butt. So yeah, <laughs> but you're, you know, Trey. I think you're basically on the right track. Um, the The truth is that one of the reasons you're not hearing about um, moving the healthcare system to a single payer system, which is what most of the rest of the world does in right. way, one way, shape, or form, is the insurance and the hospital lobby who desperately don't want that to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, the insurance uh, industry has about, uh, I think it's up to about three trillion reasons per year uh, to not let that happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, but indeed, if we shifted the burden of healthcare costs from private employers to um, a public system where everybody just basically pays into the system and uh, gets their health care via that system. Among other things, you could cut out virtually all of the 15% VIG insurance, private insurance companies take on every health care transaction, right. uh, which on almost $3 trillion is $450 billion. Uh, and um, there's a lot of good reasons to do it. But I think at the end of the day, that, like when I think about health care reform, I think of a giant dartboard with all the systems of all of our competing nations on it, Canada, you, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Germany, Switzerland. And I think the way to solve the healthcare problem is just take a dart and chuck it. And right. wherever it landed on one of those squares, that system would be better than ours. And we should just do that. <laughs> yeah, but none of those countries are the greatest country on earth. <laughs> That's Nick. true. That's true. They should I be stand, throwing darts at us. Exactly. Right now. I stand corrected. <laughs> also, Mark, you know, just speaking directly to your question about why business people don't advocate for this 
you know, obviously very sensible thing. I, you know, I, I cannot answer that. I, I think part of it is, I think Trey is definitely right on about the There's fear a stigma of like socialism, to right? It. Yeah, right. that somehow it will all be worse. I also think that a lot, like on an individual level, a lot of people that are opposed to it, they think whether they own a business or whatever, that even if they st- stopped having to cover their own employees and it went to a single payer system, well, now they'll still they'll just take more of my money to pay for everybody right. now. Right. And so I'd rather pay for the people who work for me and do things for me than to have to pay for everybody, all the lazy people that won't even get a job. Right. Like, I think that's the mentality of a, that a lot of them have, which I, I, I completely disagree with, but I, I think that's how it works in a lot of people's yeah. minds. And, and in fact, we are paying for people that we right. don't employ right. because the healthcare costs they in get the spread system, out. they get spread out that, anyway. That's yeah, what I was so, trying to say yeah. earlier about if you're not going to just let poor people die, yeah. then we, we are be, paying for it. Right, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in your insurance premium. Yes. Hi, my name is Francis, and I'm calling from Texas. I recently ran into presidential candidate Hickenlooper in Montgomery, Alabama, when he was there visiting the Museum for Peace and Social Justice. And, of course, I took the opportunity to mention pitchfork economics to him because I really feel like that would be a winning message for anybody who's running for office. And he said, oh, yeah, I know, Nick. And then he said, you are an interesting guy, and you had gone far less. And uh, he also, when I suggested that you were a billionaire, disputed that and said he didn't think you were a billionaire. So my question is, how does, do we get the message out that neoliberal economic policies continue to hurt all of the middle class and the working poor? I think if a Democratic candidate would embrace the messages that you so clearly explain, they would have a much better opportunity at defeating the incumbent president. So I'm just curious, how do we get the presidential candidates to pay attention and to understand the importance of your message? Thanks so much. I enjoy your show. I look forward to every single episode and tell everyone I know about it. Have a great day. Keep up the good work. Would you th- Francis, Francis from Texas. I think she, she's really on to something, something that's annoyed me for a while just in general when it comes to the Democratic Party or the left in this country is that it, you, the left for a long time was you know the, the party of poor people, the party of working people, yeah. the, the labor party, and they're just kind of not anymore. And I thought there's a major opportunity there for the left to gain some ground back in places like you know like west virginia or oklahoma with like the teacher strikes and that type of thing um and i think people would be receptive to these types of economic arguments if the left uh gave enough of a can i say shit (laughs) if gave enough of a shit to uh to you know talk about them to begin with i think it's a it's a huge hole uh, in their strategy so far, as far as I can tell, because I agree completely they should be starting to deconstruct all of this stuff to the, the people who need to hear it the most. But as far as how they should best go about that, I, why don't you tell me and yeah, Francis? Yeah, well, <laughs> first of all, Francis, I really, I really uh, am so appreciative of you representing me to uh, uh, John Hinkenlooper, who I know and uh, like. I think it's hilarious that he thought I was too far left. Uh, but I'm not surprised by that uh, because the Democratic Party 
uh, that John is sort of uh, a big part of has been notoriously wrong on economic issues for a right. generation. Make no mistake, um, if you're a middle class person, uh, you've gotten screwed over the last 40 years, but you got your screwing from Democrats and Republicans alike yeah. uh, because they have been, you know, the best the, the best the Democratic Party has been able to muster is some form of like sort of trickle down light. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Trey, you should talk a little bit about where you're from and yeah. and the the marvelous job the Clintons did well, for you. <laughs> to the, the like briefest the briefest Cliff Notes version of it is I'm from a really small town in Tennessee. The beating heart of that town's economy for for decades was uh, this big clothing factory that right after NAFTA passed packed up and moved to mexico which i know like that kind of became like a false narrative like all oh, Mex mexico took all the jobs or whatever but in the case of salina tennessee where i'm from that's literally exactly what actually happened right. and the town has never uh recovered from it to crime and opioid abuse and all that just skyrocketed things are terrible there now and have been over 13 percent unemployment for like 20 plus years now and i mean it's just been utterly devastated and most people there blame the you know bill clinton but then just the clintons for sure for that to this day yeah. so like hillary was they were never gonna go with hillary after everything yeah. even when the alternative was what it was they were never gonna go with hillary because yeah. they blame the clintons for right. what happened you know neoliberalism uh for for what happened to their home yeah. and i get i get why yeah. i mean you know why, makes wouldn't, perfect why sense. wouldn't they feel that yeah, way? yeah absolutely and and you know, I think John Hinkenlooper is part of, uh, you know, sort of that, that, that old tradition of Democrats who believed largely that tax cuts for rich people created growth and raising wages killed jobs. Um, just we should just give slightly smaller tax cuts to rich people and we should hold wages down just a little bit less than the Republicans as the distinguishing factor. And and um you know this this podcast is devoted to trying to talk at least some democrats and hopefully a few republicans out of those idiotic ideas and into the notion that you know it, the most pro business thing we can do is build a thriving middle class right and 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 indeed you know like if the clintons had approached nafta in a better way, uh, we would, you know, that, you know, your town where you grew up with in the country would be in a far better spot. Well, very quickly, one other thing, it's a very rural southern community, but Clay County, where Salina's in, in every electoral map for years and years and years up until that happened was a blue county within Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And then that happened and it's been deep red ever since, basically. Yeah. And I want to address the billionaire thing. So, so I'm not a billionaire. I'm worth less than $1 billion, but many hundreds of I'm millions. sorry. No, I apologize. Okay. No. no, no, I'm no, no, no lost no. that third comma. No, that's yeah, yeah. got to be tough. No, no, no. And I have <laughs> said this. So it's on my Twitter. Like, I put it everywhere. But people, it, well, of course, it's academic. Yeah. Right? Anyway. Uh, and, and right. They, yeah, yeah, Almost, there's like yeah, three yeah. people on earth are like, oh, did you hear about Nick? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's rough. Yeah. He's anyway, in bad shape Francis, now. I, Francis, I just want to say that I had tried to be as explicit as possible, as often as possible, that I'm actually worth less than $1 billion. Many hundreds of millions, but not a billion. And so I draw that distinction often, and uh, John... <laughs> Maybe he knew. Um, 
but anyway, but Trey, I still roll pretty good, don't I? As far as I can tell, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, anyway. yeah, Nick's doing fine, yeah. Francis. <laughs> so, and, you know, here's the thing. In general, we need to, you know, I think what you did with uh, Hinkenlooper is how we collectively get dem- get presidential candidates to take these issues more seriously. Um, we have to be in their face and communicate that the, the only basis upon which we will um, vote for them is if, if they are devoted to meeting the scale of the economic challenge most people face, face at, the sca- at that scale. In other words, you know, it's not good enough for him to be advocating for raising the minimum wage from seven twenty-five to nine dollars an hour. That is not going to material he- materially help anybody in this country. We need to move it from seven twenty-five to fifteen or twenty dollars an hour. Um, so we all collectively need to be in the face of these public officials to try to drag them back, frankly, back to the center. Uh, uh, which is economic policies that benefit everybody. I think, and I, again, talking out of my ass, but I feel like, and I hope that in a like post-Bernie, post-AOC type of work, like they better start caring about it or they're not going to have a shot in hell, in my opinion. Like if they're not, if they're not yeah. appropriately on message as far as taxing the rich and all of that, yeah. uh, they're not going to they get. They're not going to get very far. So yeah. I, I, it ain't up to me. They need to figure out yeah. how to go about it, or they're going to be in deep shit if they don't. Yeah. In my opinion. Hi, this is Brian calling from Chicago. Uh, my question is about the minimum wage. Um, I'm a big supporter of a $15 minimum wage, but I get pushback from those um, say nurses, EMTs that are currently making $15 an hour. How do I communicate um, and how do I uh, articulate that a federally mandated $15 minimum wage is good for everyone because they deserve a raise too? Thanks. Okay, Brian, this is one of the things that pisses me off more than anything when it comes to economic problems because he's 100% right. I know I know a lot of these people too. You, you start talking about raising the minimum wage and you start hearing people, he said EMTs, perfect example, that are like uh, – why should a teenager flipping burgers get paid $15 an hour when that's what I get paid for saving lives? That Does that sound fair to you? And it's like, that's not that's not what any of us were saying, man. Like, we're not saying that the burger flipper deserves to make as much money as you do for saving people's lives. We are saying that you both are getting fucked and deserve <laughs> yeah, to, be, right, exactly. to be paid more and treated better. Yeah. Like, both of you should yeah. be getting more. Like just yeah. because you're getting fucked over doesn't mean that yeah. that kid should be getting fucked over too. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I don't understand. Everybody has this, and maybe it's like a human nature thing. It is. People want to make it about their situation compared to someone else. When like we're trying to fix things for everybody, you know? Yeah, and Brian, but Brian, I think you, you, you know you raise a super good question uh, it, because it, and it does, and and this policy does antagonize people i've had exactly the same questions but you know the reason that that emt is only making 15 dollars an hour is because the floor is so right. low right like the, what would happen over 40 years is they kicked the foundation out from under the house yeah and everybody wonders why the floor is collapsing yeah well if the if the foundation is solid and high and rising well the, everything above it will do well too, and so the quicker we can raise the minimum wage to fifteen or twenty dollars an hour, the quicker that EMT's 
wage right. will go from 15 to $30 an hour or $40 an hour as the dynamics of the labor market adjust to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so everybody in the country has a stake in raising the floor as high as we can because people who are in the middle now will be compressed upwards in the same way that they are. Uh, so anyway, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the basic uh, story, uh, but I'm deeply sympathetic to the pushback you're getting because I've gotten it myself. Yeah. Okay, this is William Smith. I'm calling from Decatur, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. When we talk about the health of the economy, are we talking about the wealth and prosperity of the rich, or are we speaking of the economy as a separate entity in and of itself? And an even greater question would be because of the fact that it really doesn't matter whether it's the former or the latter, the largest participants in the economy, namely the poor, are never even considered in that calculation. So the the greater question is, how do we include the poor into a discussion about the health of the economy? And I think that by doing that and making that the way that we uh, report on the overall health of the economy can change the dynamic of how the poor are considered in our society. Thank you. Well, William, I think it depends on who's talking about the economy, but without a doubt, a whole lot of people, when they talk about the economy, definitely are talking about uh, the wealth and prosperity of rich people. Like, I mean, like the stock market, when you talk about right. what the stock market's doing, like, you know, like As in my hometown, like you see, the stock market's really surging. It's like, oh, great. Well, you know, I still got to help my meemaw get her pills, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, or the opposite, like the stock market crashes and it's like, okay, whatever. I literally have no idea what that means. It means nothing to me. Yes. But it's still like used as this metric uh on a national scale so i mean I, I, there's no denying or arguing with the fact that a lot of times when people talk about the economy that is what they really mean is yeah. you know the, the the wealthy and how they're doing i, I couldn't agree more and uh, and uh william you're really on to a very very important thing which is how we characterize whether things are going better or worse and if you think about all of the basic statistics we use to measure the economy or sort of in everyday life like that the you know where the stock market is or whether gdp is growing you know these things are completely disconnected from the lives of the typical family mm-hmm. uh you know it, i can't remember what the statistics are but something like 80 percent of the stocks in the country are owned by the top 10% of Americans. The bottom 60% of Americans effectively own zero. Mm -hmm. Um, And GDP has gone up every year, you know, for all intents and purposes for 40 years. Um, I think GDP is up uh, astounding 112% over the last uh, 20 years. But the median income is only up 18%, right? Like that's that's the big problem. And, you know, it's completely crazy that the median wage, right, the the amount of money that the typical family makes is not a thing that we really measure, right? right? Like this is the measure of the health of the economy is how's the typical family doing year to year and relative to before, uh, to say nothing of poor people who should be measured in the same way. And in fact, it, I mean, it is hopeful that there's a a movement afoot to measure how different segments of the society are doing 
uh, simultaneously. So we can see how the richest are doing, how the poorest are doing, how middle class people are doing uh, in a more concrete way. And I think that will lead to better policies because it'll be more obvious to everybody that a few people are winning and everybody else is losing. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know the metrics or whatever, but I can tell you, you know, right now how the poor people are doing. <laughs> not good. Yeah. Not good. More at 11. Hi, Nick. My name's Harun, and I'm calling from London. I found out about your podcast through the Young Turks, and I absolutely love it. I was wondering, uh, as much as all of the, you know, the massive impact can be done through the political process, and um, and that, you know, that has to be done through the political process, uh, I was wondering, on an individual level, what are our options to really ensure that we're not supporting or or we're doing our best to support a, a more progressive uh, economics? Where do you stand on whether it be charity or maximizing personal wealth? How is it that as individuals we can help change the system and make it more equitable and fair for those around us? Thanks, and once again, love you guys. All the best. So, Hadrin, uh, thank you for the question. It's awesome, by the way, to have somebody calling in all the way from merry old England. That's, that's cool. Um, I, I have a very strong view on this. Uh, um, as a you know, as a philanthropist, which is kind of what I am now, um, there's all sorts of ways to make change in the world. And one of them is to give money away, which tends to be ameliorative, kind of, yeah, how did you put it the, early? Treating the symptoms and not the not cause. the causes. Yeah. Or getting at the structural problems, which always is at the intersection of policy and politics. And, you know, the, the thing is that, that involves uh, a particular kind of work plan, but it also involves creating conflict that lots of people don't like to have. Yeah. You know, and the thing about deep social problems is that they are always a product of um, a particular arrangement which benefits the hell out of somebody, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right? I mean, there's a reason that there's a bunch of poor people and a few rich people and core among the reasons is that the rich people really like the current arrangement and are going to resist the hell out of, cha yeah. of changing it. And so if you want to really make a difference, of course, you can't, there's all sorts of nice charitable ways to help people. But if you want to make a difference at scale, you're going to have to change the system. And if you're going to change the system, you are going to, you're going to be in the politics business, which is what our team at Civic Ventures do. Basically, it's a team of prof political professionals that run campaigns and build narratives and shape policy, be, you know, because that's the way to do it at scale. At scale, for sure. And I, and I could be wrong, but I felt like the caller was, you know, like, what can what like, what can he do? Like a day to day person who agrees with you on all of this, what can they actually do differently to sort of, you know, help in whatever way they can? Yeah. And even if that's not what he meant, that's what I'd like to know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think that that's fair. I think I think you do have to be involved in politics. Um, you, you have Which to, I think is a good thing to yeah. tell people anyway. Yeah. Like get be involved, get involved. Uh, I think that can only lead to better things. That's right. Like there's a reason that your political leaders have enacted policies which have benefited people other than you. Mm -hmm. And that is because they did not hear from you. You were not involved. You did not right. like scream outside their door and say, no way, hell no. Um, you know, folks weren't in the streets protesting and complaining about a set of economic policies that benefited the rich and disadvantaged the many. 
And if, if you want to change it, you have to personally get involved. There's no, there's no alternative. Now, I'm, I'm personally blessed to have the resources to stand up my own political apparatus. That's how I decided to get involved. And so I have this wonderful team of people who know how to, who know how to run campaigns and build narratives and beat the shit out of politicians if we don't agree with them. Uh, but everybody can do it in their own way at their own scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wish there was a handy way not to do that and get the effect that you want. But I, I just, sadly, I think that that's just what you got to do in every way you can. Well, I mean, that's kind of your whole deal with the pitchforks, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, right. people, that's what eventually is going to happen. One right. way. It's what's going to have to happen is regular people yeah. coming together and yeah. saying they're over, not, not going to put up with this anymore. Right. Hi, Pitchfork. This is Leslie from Detroit, and I was wondering how um, modern monetary theory would explain the 2008 economic crash. Okay, thank you. That's way above my pay grade, Leslie, for sure. Nick, I don't know how you feel about yeah. it. So, okay, so I saw a pretty good movie I think was about that. <laughs> A couple called, of them, yeah. <laughs> Big short margin call. Yeah. I don't know how accurate they are, but I recommend those. Anyway, that's my time. You yeah. go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, in a sense, uh, we solved the 2008 crash with modern monetary policy by just um, creating a bunch of money and lending it, unfortunately, uh, to the financial system to prop <laughs> it up. By unfortunate, I mean we could have taken that huge pile of money that we invented that the government printed into existence. And uh, instead of bailing out the banks, bailing out the consumers who had been defrauded by the banks, uh, and we would be much better off as a country, and ideally a whole bunch of banks would be bankrupt and we would have new banks. Uh, yeah. but, um, but I do think that- Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, the banks are all in trouble. They're all dying. What are we going to do? I don't know. Somebody call the banks. <laughs> yeah, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What, let's tell, let's bank, ask the banks. See what they think yeah, we should yeah, do. Yeah. It was really stupid <laughs> um, uh, to, to, to make a bunch of bankers richer. Yeah. Uh, but uh, why do we do that? Neoliberalism, right? Because the, uh, the be, because the prevailing neoclassical economic thinking was that that was the only option available to us and that um, the richer the rich got, the better off everyone will be. Um, sadly, I mean, uh, we didn't have the courage at the time uh, to make the investments that we made in our country bigger. We could have um, we could have doubled the size of the investments we made in the country at the time of the crisis. And if we had, we would we would have emerged from the crisis quicker, and everybody would be better off. Well. Uh, briefly, you know, I actually was kind of directly involved and impacted by all that because I was uh, getting out of um, college right around the time of the crash, which was hugely, uh, you know, good time to be graduating college. Like, that really worked <laughs> out well for me. But but the only reason I found a job is because I found a job that was uh, funded by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And it not only gave me and a bunch of other like other college graduates jobs, but the job I had was administering all these grants that went to American cities and towns specifically for like renewable energy projects. So like they put a lot of money into, uh, you know, making the city hall more efficient or getting putting in all new streetlights that are, you know, more energy efficient, it, whatever, any number of things that were like genuine actual improvements that, you know, 
are still there today mm-hmm. like that were long-term improvements and right. actually like did good things it makes me kind of biased about it except for the thing is like you said the amount of that that we did which was like effective was dwarfed in comparison to the amount of that money that, that we printed that was just yeah. given to the banks or right. whatever like they did a little bit of that but they we could have done nearly enough much. they could have yeah. just done all of that type of thing so how old were you when you did that 23 so you flew around the country giving away the government's money yeah actually my my uh you must you must have cut a very impressive figure yes right my my uh yeah, yeah you're so right my um my area was the Pacific Northwest, actually, coincidentally. So, like, I go, like, you know, Bellevue or Bellingham or Tacoma or wherever. And, yeah, I'd walk in the door and they'd have, like, a whole team of city engineers and the city manager and stuff sitting there. And then this 23-year-old walks in and is like, hey, I'm from the DOE, you know. like with my And the looks on their faces, man, just like, oh, my God. Okay. This is what the government's, you know, sending us right now. But it all worked out, uh, you know, for them, I hope. I don't know. I, I have no reason to say yeah. that, actually. But I think it worked out. I hope it did. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. People were uh, yeah, vastly impressed. disappointed when I showed up, Nick. <laughs> yeah. Happens in my comedy shows a lot, too, now that you mention it. Anyway. Awesome. <laughs> Hi. I've been curious. I've asked a lot of people this question, and no one has ever been able to give me an answer. When the stock market goes up and generates value or generates wealth, where does that wealth and that value come from? And if the stock market drops you know, 10%, where does that 10% value go to? It's never made sense to me how the stock market can grow seemingly out of nowhere. So if you could answer that, I would be eternally grateful. Thank you. Well, I can tell you this, dear caller, uh, you can take comfort in knowing that you're not at all alone in having these questions. <laughs> it's related to what we were saying earlier. Like to most people, they feel exactly like uh, the the caller did. Like they don't. It's all just like like words and numbers that don't mean anything to right. most people. So I think most people would like to know the answer to this question. You yeah. Know? So here's the. It's a super interesting <clears throat> question. It's a very complex question about. Um, you know, what the economy is. And, and what's super interesting and is probably not a very satisfying answer is that the economy is just a bunch of ideas. Right. The economy is imaginary. Yeah. Money it's, it's just is numbers. And, it, it's, and, it's just it's just a shared fantasy. Right. When I hand you a dollar bill, um, that dollar bill is worth a dollar because we in our minds have agreed that it's worth a dollar. But you're taking if, me back to like college bong session talks right exactly. now. It's like it ain't none of it's real, man. Exactly. It's and all just a lie. It's dude. all a lie. It's only real because we say it's real, you know? And I think but you're basically, right, <laughs> basically you were right in the bong session is that it is all a lie. The economy is what social scientists call uh, an imagined order or an intersubjective reality. And it, what, it, what is an intersubjective reality is it's a set of subjective ideas mm-hmm. that we agree about. Yeah. 
So the legal system is another great example of just an imaginary system. I mean, time is kind of that way Absolutely. with days of the weeks and months and all, all that. It's all just stuff that like we just made up yeah. and we're all like, yeah, that works. We'll yeah. go with that. Yeah. I mean, and now July is a thing. Obviously, one thing that is real with respect to time is day and night. Right. Right. It progresses yeah. like that yeah space but time exists it but does. our whole like system surrounding we, time exactly. and the way we talk about it and all that we just made up exactly and so in the same way that we just made up the idea that the minimum wage should be seven dollars and 25 cents an hour when the stock market goes up that that is just the the, the product of our collective greed and fear and imagination and indeed um, you can monetize that increased wealth let's say if you own a stock for ten dollars and the world all of a sudden decides it's worth a hundred dollars and you sell that stock and you buy a car with the money you made you know indeed mm -hmm. you, you converted that increased um, imaginary wealth into actual wealth and again if it goes from 100 to 10 then you lost that money but you know the thing about the human economy is that it is in our imaginations and our shared imaginations and the reason that's so important is, is to, to understand is that means we can change it, right? <laughs> right. That means we can collectively decide that the minimum wage should not be seven dollars and twenty five cents. It should be fifteen, mm -hmm. and we should also decide that it is reasonable for wealthy people to not spend twenty percent of their earnings on taxes, but forty or fifty or sixty percent. That that arrangement, that social arrangement, is preferable. Uh, so I hope that answered your question in a in a moderately reasonable way. So Trey. What did you think about answering all these crazy questions? Well, I really wouldn't know because I don't think that I answered very many of them. I think you did a great job of answering <laughs> them, and I'm just glad to have been here for it. No, I had a good time, and I learned a lot, and uh, yeah. I could talk about this type of stuff all day because, you know, like growing up, how I did, that's how we got sort of hooked up in the first place right. is because just by nature of my life experience, right. I've always felt like this stuff is really the key to everything. Yes. You know, and so, yeah, I'm just glad to be here. Yeah, and when you, when you you know when we're when we're listening to these questions and talking about the answers you know as you think about it and i'm you know droning on in my technical way about what what's going on do my answers surprise you or it, does it feel like they contravene common sense or no not at all not yeah. for me personally like i think it's just they have the opposite effect on me normally you'll say a thing that like i didn't know the yeah. particulars of but in my mind i hear it and i'm like that totally checks out like yeah. of course that of course that's true yeah well he just you know because it it t makes sense to me it, yeah. it's the opposite of contravening i mean so yeah. you know but obviously not everybody feels that way yeah i know but we definitely we get hay mail too so oh, I, I bet. <laughs> I but anyway, um, it was thank thank you so much for taking your the time out of your comedy career to come talk to us and be part of uh, Pitchfork Economics. Super fun to have you, and thank uh, thank you to all of our listeners from all over the world, which is super cool. 
uh, uh, sending us some like flipping amazing questions. We got, by the way, hundreds of them. And obviously we cannot answer hundreds of them. We would be here for like 10 days, but um, we did the best we could to answer as many as we could. And we would love uh, more. And if you have a hankering, please call our number and leave a voicemail 731-388-9334. For all you international listeners, I don't even, what is the country code? Oh, one. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, but it's so what cool. else would it be? Yeah, Nick? I have, that's true. Other than one. Yeah. Other than, yeah, we're number one. That's right. We're number one. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, in the next episode, uh, Trey and I are uh, going to answer uh, even more tricky economics questions. Uh, thanks again for everybody, and uh, thank you, Trey. And thank you. We'll see you on see you on down the road. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L A R J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action, follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests, and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jessen Farrell, Jasmine Weaver, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fabley. See you next week.